Welcome to Wednesday night. We're going to get started. And uh, it's good to see you. It's good to hear you uh, chatting with each other. Fellowship is uh, super fun, and hopefully we'll have plenty of time for that at the end of the lesson tonight. So, so get to th- this is probably the most famous of the prophecies in the book of Daniel. Prophecy of 70 weeks. And so uh, it'll be fun walking through that tonight. So you can see up on the screen, and uh, it's the same, same headings on your half sheet, uh, the walkthrough of what's here. So verses 1 and 2, we get details about the setting and Daniel's realization. What that means is he realizes that the time of captivity is coming to a close, and he's, he's reading that and recognizing that as he's reading uh, prophecies from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a contemporary Uh, Jeremiah would have been a quote-unquote captive of Israel that didn't have to go into captivity. He stayed in the promised land during the 70 years. And so it's interesting that Jeremiah's writings that we also have in our Bible right next to Daniel's, Daniel had that or at least had received word of it and knew what, uh, what Jeremiah was saying. So then the second section, in response to what he is realizing in Jeremiah, Daniel prays. It's a prayer of confession on behalf of the people of Israel. And uh, it's a beautiful prayer. It's a, uh, a great model of confession and repentance, recognizing why we ask God for things, what we ask God for. And so we'll, we'll focus on that for a little bit. And then he does make a request there that God would, uh, would act on behalf of Israel at the very end of that prayer. And then that's where we get to this big prophecy. So... We see a familiar character uh, show up in verse 20. It's Gabriel again, and he's got this famous prophecy of the 70 weeks, and we'll walk through that. And it's, it's talking about really an immediate but very future plan for the nation of Israel, how God will act uh, to bring judgment to pass for Israel and then to bring in uh, everlasting righteousness, as the, the verses will say. So there's our outline for the night. So we'll start in verses 1 and 2. Awesome, thank you. So pretty short section here, but it is just kind of setting the stage for us. I think it's, it's really interesting, what we already know of Daniel, is that he's a very devout, devout man. He prays three times a day. We also know something about him from this passage. He's doing his devotions. And he's reading in the book of Jeremiah. He specifically names it. And so you can see on the screen there, uh, he's most likely reading what we would call Jeremiah 25. So I, I would like to turn over there just so you can see it, put your finger on it. Uh, I put Jeremiah 9 there. There's also some reflections about Israel's sin in Jeremiah 9 that repeat some similar phrases that will come up in Daniel's prayer. So he might have just been reading through Jeremiah and meditating on a couple of passages. But I'm pretty confident he's referring to Jeremiah 25. So, Jeremiah 25, just take a look at verse 11 and 12. And it was, it's so hard to do that, like just read a couple of verses, like almost way out of context, because we haven't looked at Jeremiah, but you'll bear with me there. So, verse 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So, specific mention of Babylon, who would conquer Israel and... Really, there's a three-part conquering and deportation, but the official date is 586 when they conquered Jerusalem. Uh, the first deportation would be from 605. 
which, you know, pull out those little half sheets from like Daniel 1 and you'll get all those things again, right? Then verse 12, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation in the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord. I will make it a perpetual desolation. And so there's the twice mentioning of 70 years. So you can see on the slide that the first year of Darius, as it mentions in uh, verse 1, would be 538 B.C. So if Daniel was deported in 605 B.C., which is what we looked at, you know, like however many weeks ago, eight weeks ago, uh, Daniel's been in Babylon in captivity for 67 years. And so he is recognizing that 70 years is, is, is almost here, right? And uh, he recognizes that as he's reading in Jeremiah. And so that prompts him, as he recognizes that that 70-year number is about to be hit, or he's, they're drawing near to it, it moves him to pray and confess the sin of the nation and, and ask God to fulfill almost the promise he made through Jeremiah. So pretty simple setting there. But that's what's happening like to envision him in, uh, you know, sitting at Starbucks early in the morning reading Jeremiah, and uh, he comes to this conclusion, and then he, he's going to pray. So, obviously, Starbucks is uh, not invented yet. But so uh, Daniel's prayer. Amy, would you like to read uh, three through nineteen? Uh, okay. So you can see here, uh, it's really tough to kind of just, you know, as I was trying to put this together, I was like, you know, what would how would I feel if someone had a prayer of mine that I thought was private written down, you know, and then, and then was like going to critique it, you know, like talk about what I had said. And it was like, I was kind of mindful of that as I thought about this. And obviously, you know, it's in the word of God for a reason. But so I was trying to be careful, just like, let's just describe what's there. So uh, you can kind of break it down. Uh, you see a lot of recognition of how Israel has gone wrong. You have this long list of just, okay, we've sinned, committed iniquity, we're wicked, we've rebelled, we departed from your word, we didn't listen to the prophets, it's over and over and over. And uh, Daniel, Daniel's spot on, you know, it's not hard to read through the history of Israel and recognize that for the majority of Israel's history, it hasn't been a large group of believers, there's, there's short stints where most of Israel are believers and love the Lord. But the majority of Israel's history is being drawn away and being wicked and idolatrous, serving other gods. And that, that's why they're in exile in the first place here. And so this, this doesn't shock us. But what I think is unique about this is, uh, and you can see I've bolded a phrase there, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws. And I think Daniel, you know, he's, he's not just praying the prayer to get what he wants. It's like if you've been away for 70 years and you probably want to go home too, you know, you just think about sometimes we want things and it's just easy to utter the prayer. And, you know, God wants me to pray and, you know, we have not because we ask not, right? It says that in James 4. Then the very next verse in James 4, but we ask and do not receive because we ask amiss that we actually can ask for good things because we're loving the wrong things. And it's just interesting, I think, to recognize that is not what Daniel is doing. This is not a selfish prayer at all. It's a, a broken, contrite recognition of, I think he would put himself in that group as one of the 
you know, more righteous ones, the prophet, but he's lumping the whole group together that we're a pretty wretched group of people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just look again at verse 7. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but what belongs to us is shame. And uh, is it, I think he is rightfully broken over his and the nation's sin. And uh, that, there's a, a very easy parallel to that idea that we're going to talk about later, that this is a great model for us. That, you know, we're, we're not in exile in Babylon, but we do have sin issues, and this is a great model of how to pray. Um, we're not Israel, and we're not condemned the same way Israel will be with their judgments and the future judgments that are coming, but this type of contrition and repentance is necessary for our lives too. We'll just suffice to say there. Kind of right next to all of these statements about how sinful Israel is, is a lot of statements of how amazing God and his character is. And you can see that on your list. He's great. He's awesome. He keeps his covenant. You uh, look there at verse 4. There, there's a, a very heavy emphasis in the Old Testament on the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant. The reason why Israel is in exile is because they failed to keep the covenant that God had given them. They, they did not keep the law that was given to them at Sinai, and he told them that I will allow other nations to conquer you if you don't bring your end of the bargain with this covenant. And there are some covenants in the Old Testament that were unconditional, meaning that God would fulfill them whether or not the nation obeyed. And there were some that were conditional. And staying in that land was a conditional one. That at least initially, God let them go out of the land to be dispossessed because of their lack of faithfulness. But what is highlighted in Old Testament theology is that God never does that like we do. God is absolutely faithful to his covenants 100% of the time. He, he never breaks a promise. He never forsakes. And uh, that is certainly highlighted here. Uh, we looked at verse 7, uh, but then he kind of repeats it again. Uh, maybe someone can help me out where he brings up that mercy and forgiveness. He says almost the exact same phrase, that mercy and forgiveness belong to you, but shame to us. I'm not seeing it here on my own. Someone want to help me out? Verse 9? Thank you. There we go. Point to the chairs. I love that. So, yeah, verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And just a high exaltation of the character of God. And I think it is even highlighted further when it's right next to how sinful we are, right? And so we see the character of God highlighted here. And then at the very end of this, you can see how he transitions from recognition of sin and a, a thankfulness for God's character, he transitions to asking God for things. And it's not wrong for us to ask God to do things. We are commanded to pray. And I think sometimes we, well, what should I pray for? And we do know that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, that he helps us when we don't know how to pray. Uh, but, you know, a great way to learn how to pray is to look at the prayers in Scripture. And what are these men and women praying for? And some other great examples would be like Psalm 51, 
which is a prayer of repentance from David. And what does he ask God to do in those prayers? And those are very helpful to us when we have sinned. And we're like, well, what do I ask God for here? Well, what does David ask for in Psalm 51? Wash me. Create in me a clean heart. And, you know, I think we, we certainly don't go wrong when we pray the word of God. If you pray the word of God, you're pretty confident you're praying the will of God, right? So I don't think God would ever not give you a clean heart if you genuinely asked for it and were seeking it. You know, this is a very easy way to know how to pray is to follow the model that we're given. And so what is David, excuse me, not David, Daniel, uh, what is he praying for here? So just look at 17 through 19 again. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. So you see here, he's, he's asking him to listen, and that is theologically correct. If we regard iniquity in our heart, God does not listen, right? But if we confess our sin, he is willing to give grace and mercy in times of need. And so he, he does this in a correct way. He's confessed, and then because he has a clean account, he asks, okay, now you listen to me, Lord, listen. And what does he ask for in verse 17? Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Uh, so what are we talking about there? Okay, uh, He's recognizing the emptiness or the destruction of God's land, and really specifically in Jerusalem, the temple. The temple where the presence of God would reside for the nation of Israel, and that is empty, it's desolate, no one is there. And when he says, cause your face to shine upon it, it's probably kind of a euphemism. We could try to draw some like literal examples of that from the Old Testament, but that it's a, a euphemism or a phrase trying to denote favor. Like, look on your sanctuary and bring favor back to it, is the idea. And uh, I think you get an insight into Daniel's motivation here. It's not look on the people. It's not look on me and give me favor or give the people favor. Look on your dwelling place and let your glory be there again. And uh, we talked about this a handful of weeks back, but being motivated by the glory of Christ being produced in our hearts, that allowing the transforming work to happen within us through discipleship, God's glory literally is put on display through us. If you remember that conversation of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I think this is a very similar heart to that, that Daniel wants God's glory to resume in his sanctuary, in his temple, in his land, through his people. And so uh, just a little hint there to some motivation. Uh, verses 18 and 19, we'll keep looking. So, oh my, oh my God, incline your ear to hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. So again, your name is what's at stake here. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy. Again, it's not about how bad we are, even though we're really bad, but 
God, we're here because of how great you are, and we want your name to be restored. So then, verse 19, you get some really nice short ones here. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay. For your own sake, my God, for your city, your people are called by your name. So what does he ask for? Lord, listen to my prayer and then act. You know, he's almost calling on God's faithfulness to just do what God's faithfulness always does, or God in his faithfulness always does. So that God will be true to his word, the sin is confessed and forgiven, and now, Lord, restore your people to the land. And uh, we'll, we'll come back uh, when we get to the second half of the sheet and maybe talk a little bit more about some aspects of that prayer. But uh, again, just a beautiful prayer of repentance that you could meditate on for days and, and be blessed by and, and, and try to exemplify in our own lives. So as he prays that, God is very swift to answer the prayer. And he sends Gabriel and uh, is going to give him a lot of information about how God will initially restore Israel, but then also will completely restore Israel. And that's in uh, the next section here, 20 through 27. Okay, so this is where, you know, this is why we all came out tonight, right? What, what in the world are we talking about here? So, the revelation of 70 weeks for Israel. So, while he is praying, in verse 20, uh, while he's presenting his supplication, yes, while I was speaking, he repeats it in verse 21. So, this is like an immediate answer. And just a quick side note, I don't know if you're like me, but as I read that and I think about it, my initial thought is, man, it'd be nice if we got immediate answers to prayer, right? And it'd be really nice if angels would come down to me and be like, hey, you just prayed about this. Here's your answer. Uh, that'd be really nice. And, uh, you know, just this isn't meant to be like a theology on prayer, but realize that a lot of times our, answer, our, our prayers are answered immediately. And the immediate answer is no. And very similar to that, we pray things, and he does immediately answer, and his answer is wait and be patient and I will give you what you need. Uh, but we, we usually don't think about those right away. It's like, why didn't I get the thing I wanted? You know. Um, but I can, in, in a very human way, recognize, man, that'd be pretty nice. You know, like just, boom. Charlie, here's the 10 things you just asked for, and you get three out of 10. Um, but uh, we, you know, usually we do get answers to prayer. It's just that we don't always recognize the answer because maybe we don't like the answer. But anyway, just a side note there. As I was thinking about in my office today, and anyway. So, what does Gabriel tell him? He informed me, verse 22, and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. So, the, the beginning of the prayer, God commands Gabriel, go and tell Daniel this. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And then what follows is this prophecy of, of 70 weeks. Uh, just, a, again, a really quick side note in verse 23. Uh, and it's not really the main point of anything here, but just nestled in what Gabriel says. Uh, he sent me to tell you, and you are greatly beloved. And I think, you know, again, this isn't meant to be like a theology of prayer, but when you pray, 
the God to whom you are praying loves you, and as his son or daughter, he, you are beloved in his eyes. And again, it'd be really nice if an angel came down and told me that every time I prayed, right? Uh, but we also have the word that tells us that. So just not to overlook that phrase. That was a blessing to me. So what we're going to try and do is walk as specifically word by word through this prophecy to try and understand what it means. So starting in verse 24, 70, and you can see on the PowerPoint and on your sheet, 77s. So it's commonly referred to as week, and we understand that vernacular because we have seven-day weeks. That's been around for a while, and that's why it's translated that way. But literally what's there is the word 70, and that is seven with a plural ending, and then the, the word seven a second time. So 77s is what's literally there. So that's where you, I think consistently through the PowerPoint, I say sevens or seven and not weak. And so it's 70 groups of seven is the idea. And there are 70 groups of seven or 490 for our math folks out there, I think, I think. Uh, they are decreed, so it's decided. So God sends a message through Gabriel to tell him about Israel, which is the next phrase. For this nation, there's 70 groups of seven decided. That, no problem so far, right? Then we get to this long string of prepositional phrases. And it helps us determine really the scope of what we're talking about. So you can see there are two phrases parallel. The preposition would be on or upon. It's like concerning would be the idea. So 77s are decided concerning your people. And who would your people be? Speaking to Daniel, talking about the nation of Israel. Which makes perfect sense because the whole reason we're here is Daniel is reading in Jeremiah 25 about how the 70 years, again, that 70 or 7 idea is going to come up, how the 70 years of Israel's captivity in Babylon is almost over. So he prays and confesses the sin of the nation of Israel, which is why they were in captivity in the first place. So then God sends an answer and says, okay, for your people, here's how the restoration is going to happen. 77s for your people, Israel. And if, if that first phrase wasn't clear enough, and your holy city, very clearly we're referring to Jerusalem. And so uh, it's, a, it's common if you just start reading about Old Testament prophecies or old te- uh, interpreting the Old Testament, uh, that there's a, a new common kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Craze, that's not the right word. But people like to look at Israel in the Old Testament. It's a very common interpretive trend. That Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. That Israel in the Old Testament doesn't just mean like a nation of Jewish people, but it can refer to all of God's people. That's very common in Old Testament interpretation today, that trend. And there are theological undercurrents for why we're redefining terms. We don't do that. And we shouldn't do that. We should take this at face value, and we would literally look at, okay, who are Daniel's people? It would be the nation of Israel, not the people of God. And what's the holy city? It's not like 
all of the peoples of God city, like, so Grimes, that's my, I'm, I'm a child of God, I'm a people of God, and I'm in Grimes. No, this is Jerusalem, like, very distinct. And that's a literal interpretation of Scripture is why we would do that. And it might surprise you, but probably the majority of Bible interpreters play games like that in Old Testament prophecy. Just so that's why we talk about it. So the first two, on or concerning your people or on or concerning your holy city. Then we have a a string of six prepositional phrases that all start with the word to. And so this is indicating more of a purpose. Seventy-sevens are decreed regarding the Jewish people and Jerusalem. And the purpose is to complete the transgression. So 77s to complete the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So the first three are, I think, very parallel. Sin will end. We talked about this in, I think it was Daniel 7, uh, in that first prophecy of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, that sin and wickedness will be completely taken away, right? And that comes up here. There, there will be, in the future of Israel, a complete removal of sin. Finish the transgression. It never starts again. End of sins. It never begins again. Make reconciliation for iniquity, that all of the wrong has been brought back to peace, reconciled. Uh, and then you kind of see the opposite side of that coin in verse, er, not verse 4, the fourth phrase. To bring in everlasting or eternal righteousness. So sin is ended, and what begins is righteousness forever. So this helps us understand what we're talking about here we are clearly referring to something that has not happened. (laughs) Uh, Have we we seen sin? You could could very locally think about for the Jewish people. Have we seen since this is written in like the 5-600 BC era to today where all Jewish people have ceased sinning and are all eternally righteous? No, we have not. And so... In fact, we've gotten much and much worse probably since this was written. Sin has progressed. So we have not seen this yet. So we're looking at something that we would understand is still future. And in our theology, we're talking about God's kingdom and eternity, heaven, is what we're going to get to discussing here. When it says to seal uh, vision and profit, you think about uh, the idea of like stamping something. It makes it official, like, uh, for me, it's uh, when I send the email with these handouts to Brittany, like, we're done. And then I quickly catch typos. Um, like, if you're, if you're watching the formatting on this slide, you can find one, too. But, uh, you know, that's the idea. It's like, it's done. It's sealed. So when this happens, sin is done. It's stamped. It's never coming back. Righteousness is here. Stamp. It's, it's here forever. Like, the decision is final, is that idea of the sealing there. And then, to anoint the most holy, uh, that idea of anoint is where we would get the term Messiah from, and it's going to come up in a couple verses. It's like we're going to uh, 
choosing a word for this is difficult, but we're going to coronate a real king. We're going to anoint, uh, you know, we're going to, if we're just referring to Jerusalem, it's going to be the holy city. If we're referring to the person, like the king will be there. And again, we understand this, at least when we start talking Messiah and anointed one language, we're speaking of Christ. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We know Christ has not returned and set up an everlasting righteous kingdom yet, right? But th- so those phrases help us understand. He's telling us that the 77s are determined until we get to that, this, this kingdom of righteousness. So then, now we have to figure out, well, like, how do we kind of break down, you know, how did we get from this prophecy to where we are now, and then when is the kingdom going to come? So... Moving on, so verse 25, in light of these 77s that are determined, know and understand. He's, he's, uh, it's not technically a command, but that's the, the force to it, is Daniel now understand what we're talking about. And, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to uh, dig in and figure out what these things mean. Know and understand, then there's a prepositional phrase again, from indicating the beginning of a time frame, from the going forth, and I I wrote this very literally on the PowerPoint slide, it literally says, from going forth word, and this idea of decree, so from the going forth of a decree, the content of which is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, another phrase, until, so we're setting the parameters of a time frame from a decree until the anointed one, a prince, will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So 69 of the 77s. And the street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And so when is that first uh, time frame, uh, the from the command, Uh, You can write this down. We don't have time to look at it. Nehemiah chapter 2, we have this decree to go back and rebuild. There are a a handful of similar decrees in this time frame. The reason why we would choose Nehemiah is that is one where the city is specifically, including the different facets of the city, like a wall, are commanded to be rebuilt. So Nehemiah 2 best fits this decree. And, uh, of course, I don't have that date. I should have wrote that down. <laughs> well, it's, it's coming on a slide in the future. Here. So, uh, so that's the starting point of our 77s. And then it says, until the Messiah, the prince, is 69 of the sevens. So when the Messiah would arrive is the idea. And we will get to that in a moment again, too. And it just mentions that the city will return and be rebuilt which uh, the decree in Nehemiah did happen. They went back, they rebuilt. And uh, so partially, you know, the rebuilding happens. So then what's going to happen with this Messiah, the prince? Verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks, so the 62 is after the first seven, so it's after the 69th seven, the Messiah will be cut off. So the anointed Messiah will be killed. 
after 69 of those sevens. And the holy city will be destroyed. That doesn't necessarily mean that the city is destroyed at the same time as the cutting off of the Messiah, but that both of them are subsequent to the 69th week. And uh, so the holy city is what we know from history that's subsequent to the death of Christ. It's 8070. Uh, and then we get some descriptions of where this destruction is coming from. So after the 69th week, the Messiah is cut off, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So the Messiah will be killed after the 69th seven. The people of a prince, and uh, the word for prince there is leader, the prince who is to come, will destroy the city, uh, and then they're going to do some other things here. But, uh, and that's going to happen until the end of the war, another time frame type of, uh, of language. Uh, and, and until the end of that, desolations are determined. This is where we kind of move from the Messiah arriving, which is Christ, and his death, crucifixion, so now we're kind of getting to this time of war and desolation where we're going to transition into a discussion of the last seven, which is the tribulation. And you can see, verse 27, then he, and that's referring to the prince who is to come in the middle of verse 26, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So we have 77s, the last of the 77s, that last week, he, the prince that is to come, will make a covenant with many, and we would interpret that through Revelation, many Jewish people. But in the middle of that seven, so three and a half years in, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations will be one who makes desolate, uh, and this, this is a very difficult verse to translate. Uh, what it's talking about here is the one who makes desolate is a participle. It's, it's describing someone through what they do. So it's the one who will be making desolation or who will desolate things, if that makes sense. On the wing of abominations is referring to something that will happen in the middle of the last seven in connection with the ending of sacrifice. Again, this is in the tribulation period where the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel and then turn on them and will take over the temple, take over the sanctuary, and then start systematically killing Jewish people in the last seven weeks. And this is not a study on Revelation, but we would be served to go and look at uh, some of the middle chapters of Revelation where we see this depicted as well. The very last phrase of verse 27, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And again, that's a participle, on the one who is doing the desolating. So this will happen until the consummation or the end that is already determined for the one who is doing the evil, the, the desolating. Okay, so do I have a chart? Nope, don't have a chart. 
I should have clicked that ahead uh, a couple of minutes ago if you want to fill some things in. So the prince who is to come makes a covenant with many Jewish people for the last seven. And midway through that seven years, he takes over the temple and he turns on the Jewish people until the end that is determined. And I think now, haha, now we have a chart. And I can't take credit for this. This is our wonderful Pastor Lance who sent this to me. Uh, but this is how we would start to think through the specific timing of this prophecy. So you can see on the far left the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah 2. And then underneath of that, you see the 444 BC. When, March 5th, 444, that's when that decree happened. And so these 77s refer to groups of years. And the reason we know that is because we can add them up and it lands very specifically on an event. So the first seven years, 49, the rebuilding of Jerusalem is complete. And we noted that, that yes, it will be rebuilt, the walls will be rebuilt. After those 62 weeks, we were told that the Messiah would arrive and then be cut off. So then underneath here, you can see the math. So if we take 69 weeks, and if you look at the details of how months are numbered in the book of Genesis, we understand that they don't have like the weird 28 with the leap year sometimes and 31s. They, they operated with the 30-day month. So you take 69 times the 30 times the 7, you, you crunch the numbers out, you get to the days. And I don't want to... This makes it seem very simple. Uh, this is actually a very intricate math problem. <laughs> and uh, I could give you some books that if you really want to dive into the numbers, I have some great references for you. But you can, you can look here at the days, and if you add those up from the starting, uh, where do you get 173,880 days from March 5th, 444? You get to 33 A.D., March 30th of 33 A.D. So just in your own chronology, what do we think is happening around that time? So I'd like you to turn to Luke. We're, man, this, this is just a doozy of a lesson. Whew. I actually know a guy who wrote an article on this for Frontline Magazine, and if you ask him really nicely, he might get you that magazine article. But... Uh, and, it's just as complicated there as it is here. But anyway, uh, Luke 19, this is where Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem. And you just remember the scene here where there's that prophecy of riding in on the donkey and they go get the donkey and he's riding in and they're laying the palm branches down and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's the king. And by the way, that is... March 30 of 33 AD. And as he's riding into Jerusalem on that day, right there, which is the 69 sevens from the day that decree in Nehemiah happened, what does he say as he rides into the holy city of the Jewish people? Look at verse uh, 41. Yeah, This gets me every time. Now as he drew near... He saw the city, and he wept. 
saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, almost like this day was specifically determined for when the Messiah Prince would arrive. If you would even know, you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you. Just as Daniel 9 said, that the city will be destroyed by the people of the prince to come. They will level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, this is the beginning of the Passion Week. He'd be crucified directly after this. This is the beginning of the last week of his life. And by the way, what did Daniel 9 say would happen after the 69th 7? The Messiah that arrived in the 69th 7 would be cut off. And so you, you see that th- this chart just depicts chronologically how this prophecy in Daniel 9 to the day was fulfilled in Christ. And I think Jesus, who's, you know, if you read Matthew, he's well acquainted with the prophecies of Daniel. What he recognizes in Luke 19 is that the Jewish people didn't get it, at least not corporately. And that's why he's weeping, uh, because it was was directly given to Daniel to know that the Messiah is going to, roll in on this day, you know, they should have had that day marked in the calendars for a long time, and they missed it, and, uh, you know, we, we could look at that in a negative sense, like, how could they miss it, but you could also look at it in a positive sense, but there are statements in the New Testament that God allowed a temporary blindness of Israel to create the church, uh, that actually, that's the mystery hidden from ages old, that uh, Christ's death was not just to redeem the Jewish people, but it was also to bring in people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and that we are a result of that blindness. Um, and you try to wrap your mind around that, and you're like, I'm just not very smart, right? And that's how I feel. So, but this, this chart here kind of walks us to that 69th seven. And then you can see at the far right, you see that last seven, that last week, the 70th, which is the tribulation, and uh, you, the math, if you want the chart and you want to think through the math, we can get you the chart and get you some books. Uh, the story is really simple. It, it all adds up. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it's, a, it's pretty neat. So, knowing that you probably have lots of questions, let's move on. <laughs> so, as we, as we have been doing, let's try to pinpoint some theological points here. And this one is pretty much identical to what we had last week with a couple of word switches. So God's plan for future events, which when Daniel receives the prophecy, all of this is future. As we're studying it tonight, some of it is not future, but some of it still is. But from Daniel's perspective, God's plan for future events is contained in the scriptures and is, the plan is trustworthy and profitable to be written and studied. Like we should meditate upon these things. They're written for a reason. And then two, God's plan for the future of Israel includes a final solution to sin. 
and uh, not to be missed, all those prepositional phrases. Uh, that God's plan for the future of Israel includes a final solution to sin, which was, in part, the crucifixion of God himself through Jesus, and then will include Jesus' return as the Messiah, the anointed king, and he will rule forever in the kingdom he establishes in Jerusalem, and sin will be destroyed forever. But, so it includes that final solution to sin, which is the sinning and sacrificing of the anointed one, the Messiah, and that plan includes a final week of judgment upon Israel facilitated by another coming prince. And that is the tribulation period that is very deta- uh, in a detailed way described in the book of Revelation, where God finishes the judgment upon his people and uh, then brings in or begins to bring in through his earthly kingdom and then our eternal state, his heavenly and eternal righteous kingdom. So how do we start to, if I can get the slide to go, there we go. How do we start to apply this? Uh, So just reminders from last week when we started looking, or maybe two weeks ago, at, at predictive prophecy there are some very natural results of seeing prophecies like this come true. For the nation of Israel, this would have been a comfort to them, that God has a plan, it's determined, and it will happen. So it's very comforting. It also produces a thankfulness that, man, I'm glad God's in control of this and not me, and that through forgiveness of sin, he includes me in that plan. But then I think that third one's really the primary reminder here, is that this should, this should just cause us to worship him. Um, to, to look at him and his righteousness, why he even mingles with, with us sinners is amazing, but to know that he has a plan to, to permanently change us, for us to fellowship and serve him in righteousness for eternity, you just start meditating on that, and you go back to Daniel 7, you start picturing that throne, And you could pair with that Revelation chapter 4 and singing to him, holy, 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 in the presence of God forever. And that should affect us and it should cause us to love him in a more uh, deep way. So those three things, comfort, thankfulness, worship, come as a result of knowing God's word and its truthfulness, knowing that these prophecies have been fulfilled, at least in part. Like chapter 8, there's a very strong sense here of the assurance of Scripture's accuracy, especially if we go back and look at that chart. You start looking at how those things line up. You know, honestly, uh, <laughs> if I made a prediction about 490 years in advance, if I got within like a month, I'd be pretty happy. Um, you know, if I say something like, you know, Iowa will win the national championship in 490 years, if it happened anywhere within the next couple hundred years, I'd be like, I called that. Um, and yeah, you, I know why you laugh, but, uh, but to, to think about how that's to the day of the decree in Nehemiah to the day Jesus is riding in on that donkey, that, that should just cause us to be amazed at what God has given us in his word. And again, that should lead us to worship. And then the last bullet here, Daniel's prayer of confession, as we are about to go to prayer, uh, it's great reminders of God's character and our character which is why we need prayer in the first place. (laughs) We're absolutely dependent on him, right? And you start looking at that list of uh, the character of Israel, 
and you maybe cross off Israel, and we could write our names there. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We are wicked. We rebel. We depart from God's precepts and judgments. Uh, there's many times I have not heeded the word of God or his prophets. Uh, there are many times that I do deserve shame. And uh, sometimes he does drive me far away. Like his presence is not with me. And it's those moments where you're like, yeah, I really need to be able to commune with him. And so just like Daniel, what do I do? I confess my sin and he's faithful to forgive and cleanse me. And being cleansed of sin, I can then have a unique fellowship with his spirit through his word in my heart. And that as I spend that time with him, he actually changes me. Uh, we're in the exact same boat there. Uh, we have the same needs, and we rely on all of those same aspects of God, his forgiveness, his mercy, his righteousness, uh, to bring us in. And so I think just look, focusing on Daniel's prayer is helpful. Uh, it's a continual reminder of our need for repentance and confession. And I'll just, uh, as we're about to go into prayer, knowing really none of your struggles throughout the week, but I know my struggles throughout the week. Um, Look again at verse 13. I think this really highlights an idea of repentance for us that's really spiritually, practically helpful. Verse 13, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Not that part. That's not the encouraging part. (laughs) Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. And uh, I think my best days spiritually are not when I avoid or don't need to repent, or at least in my perspective. My best days spiritually are when I have to do that like a couple dozen times. And I think you maybe understand what I'm saying there. It's like the more you can recognize your need of repentance that drives you to trust him more and that brings you into a sweeter and deeper fellowship with God and his spirit through the word. And so just a great reminder as we uh, uh, take time to pray, uh, it's a little motivation to pray like Daniel perhaps. So that's Daniel chapter 9. Uh, a quick note about our study here. Uh, I cannot count as good as God and Gabriel can, uh, which means uh, we're actually off a week. <laughs> so we're going to actually combine the last three chapters. Uh, I forgot about that you know, holiday we do every year, year which is Thanksgiving. And uh, we're not going to have Wednesday night. I think it's the 23rd. So just to prepare you, one of the weeks that's coming up, we're going to, like, double up. And so maybe just drink an extra cup of coffee that day or something like that. Uh, Just want to let you know that. So that's Daniel 9. We'll finish 10, 11, 12 in two Wednesday nights, and we're almost done. So.